So how many of you are familiar with the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yeah. I mean, we hear a lot about the Good Samaritan, this, that, Good Samaritan laws. It's like become a cliche. We even have like a Good Sam travel club, right? And so it's like kind of overdone. And it's interesting. I think there are a lot of folks that have heard of the Good Samaritan that don't necessarily know that it's a, a biblical story. Um, what, what else is interesting about it, though, is that actually the, the, the word good doesn't actually appear in the text anywhere. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that we, that we title it the Good Samaritan, um, but that there is no mention of, of good. Um, yeah, I think that's really strange. We're going to pray right now, actually. So, Father, again, we praise you, thank you for the things that you're doing. In us and in our lives, thank you that uh, that you, Almighty God, sent your Son among us to make yourself known. And we praise you that, Lord Jesus, what you make known is a, a good, good Father who loves us, who cares about us, who yeah, corrects us and directs us and guides us, who disciplines us, but always has our best intentions in mind, not just individually, but as a community as well. So thank you so much, Jesus, that you. Uh, you taught us, you teach us, you teach us to have a faith like yours. You reorient us to the world around us and let us see the world through different different lenses, through the lenses of your Father. So let us have eyes to see the world like you see it. Change our hearts that we would be able to see, to see this world as one to be loved and to be redeemed. We praise you. Amen. So I want to really, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're in this like series where we're, we're talking about the history of Israel and of Samaritans and of peoples that were oftentimes despised within the ancient Near East during the time of life of Jesus. We walked through talking a little bit about the geography and history lesson of the nations of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the sacking of both of those kingdoms and the reconstitution of the temple and the southern nation of Israel, Judah specifically, and the way that the northern people became the Samaritan people and were just despised and hated and not cared for much at all, and that Galilee was up north above that, was Judean in a sense, but removed geographically. There's this need to travel around or sometimes through Samaria, even though you didn't like those people very much, for people like Jesus to have to do that. We talked last week of him meeting a woman at a well that was a Samaritan. The kind of despised of the despised. She was an outcast of a people that weren't cared for much by Jews. An amazing conversation that Jesus had with her that really reorients us to how we see people of other religions, other faiths. The responsibility that we have to bring the gospel to other people. The responsibility we have to understand what the world gospel even is. The kingdom of God is, is at hand. And God loves the world. It's not just for a singular group of People. It's not for one tribe. This hope that we have in Jesus is supposed to spread to all corners of the earth. Everyone is invited into the presence of God through the blood of Christ. So here we are this week, and we're going to talk about, yeah, you guessed it, the parable of the Good Samaritan, of which some of you have familiarity with. I'm going to start off, and I'm going to, I'm going to read verses 25 through 29. This is the introduction, the thing that sets up the parable. And then after that, we're going to go through it a little bit. And then we're going to read the parable itself, and then I'm going to maybe ask some questions. So, 
Here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord, with, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered prayer, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, And who is my neighbor? So we're going to stop right there. So this is an expert in the law. An expert in the Old Testament scriptures. A lawyer of sorts, if you will. And he came, this lawyer did, who was probably trained highly in understanding the scriptures, interpreting the scriptures, and applying the scriptures. He came to Jesus, not to just like powwow with Jesus, not to ask Jesus' opinion, not to see what's going on, not to partner with Jesus in any way, but he came to test Jesus. He was going to test Jesus. There was this thing that would happen in the ancient Near East, it was called challenge and repose. You ever heard of it before? I know Chris has this, we were talking about it earlier this week. <laughs> challenge and repose would be if somebody of some kind of dignity and respect in the community would come up to somebody else that maybe had some respect in the community and ask them a really hard question. Hoping to stump him, or hoping to trip him up, hoping that he would somehow, in that moment, not know what to say, and bring kind of some shame on himself. And uh, and when that happened, and I've referenced this before, it's kind of like the Highland, you know, you, you defeat the other person, you get their power, right? It was kind of that way to challenge. It was kind of that way to challenge and repose. If you won the debate, if you challenged, and the response wasn't any good, you like get that as honor, like oh. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so this, would, this, this is probably what the guy is doing. He's coming to Jesus with a hard question. And he wants, he wants Jesus to try and take it on. He wants Jesus to try and answer it. He needs to test Jesus. He asks a simple question. One that is asked of Jesus several times. But Jesus never seems to care for all that much. I don't know why we get so hung up on trying to answer this question and make a gospel out to be this question all the time. Because Jesus doesn't seem... You read all the way through when this question is asked of Jesus. He isn't like crazy about the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a fairly common question. And I love what Jesus does. It's almost kind of, it's almost kind of comical in a sense. He's like, oh, dude, I'm a Galilean. So he doesn't say all this, but like, this is what's going on here. Like, I'm a Galilean. I'm a commoner. I haven't even been formally trained. You're a lawyer and you're asking me? You tell me what it says, Mr. Smarty Pants. <laughs> Right? I mean, I think it was some poem that Jesus used, right? The heavy. No. <laughs> he just says, Well, you're an expert, what do you think? It's really a great response. We, 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 need to learn, we need to learn Jesus' way. Sometimes it's just like when people ask us a question, we want to appear smart, and so we start answering the question right away, and like five words in, and we're like, Oh, no. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going with this. <laughs> just keep saying a blow. So, but Jesus is again, he stops, and he just says, you know, yeah, what, uh, what, do you, what do you think? What's your opinion on this? <coughs> he can't say, I don't know, right? <laughs> he spent his whole life becoming an expert in the law. He can't be like, eh? Like, an old challenge repost thing. You have lost. 
So, uh, so his answer is one that is really a good answer. It's a great answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, in some order. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, okay, bingo! <laughs> You're done. Done. That's all you got to do. Do that. Just do that. Just do that and you'll live. Of course, that answer isn't good enough for him. And Jesus knows it. He knows that's not a good enough answer, which is probably why he took the route and he did in redirecting the question. Jesus knew the debate in the day concerning this command to love your neighbor. He knew that's where this guy was going with it, was trying to trip him up. By doing so, by redirecting it, he invited the lawyer to potentially implicate himself, all depending upon how he interprets neighbor. Remember, he wanted to justify himself, it says. He wanted to justify himself, who is my neighbor, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer needed to justify himself because he knew that he had excluded some from this well-known command to love neighbor. He knew that he hadn't done that for everybody, and so there must be some limitation to neighbor. Now he seeks to hear from Jesus on this point concerning exactly who he has to love. In order for him to be just to the Lord, he has to have some limited definition of neighbor because again, as we probably could all say at certain times in our lives, we have not loved everyone. So we have to come up with some narrowed down definition of neighbor. Apparently he has, for his own justifying self's sake, the idea that there are some qualifications that need to be met to consider somebody a neighbor. What he was looking for in Jesus' answer was a reason to disqualify some from his responsibility to love. Some of the possible reasons that someone could justify somebody not being a neighbor and not having to love them would be things like their nationality. I mean, a Samaritan clearly cannot possibly be a neighbor. I mean, they don't have to love Samaritans, right? Romans, meh. Or another, there were two real primary reasons people would exclude some, narrow down the definition of neighbor. Those nationality and sinners. Just like you get to a certain level of being unrighteous, and like we don't have to care about you anymore. It's really bad that when you get somebody who is both kind of a heathen and a foreigner. <laughs> My goodness sakes. So some kind of an answer like that is what Jesus, sorry, what the expert in the law is expecting. He's expecting for an answer like that and hoping for it. He's hoping that Jesus would give him an answer like that. One that justified the exclusion of some from the command to love. Because if he could, then the lawyer could again justify himself. He could be, he could be just okay in God's eyes, according to Jesus and according to himself, if he would have had some limited answer. But don't love anybody you don't really feel like love. 
Can you feel it? You can feel it. You just, you don't have to. Of course, he, the lawyer would have had Jesus at that point, too. Right? He would have had Jesus. See, Jesus was known by this point as one who loves sinners, who conversed with foreigners, who cared about people who were despised by others. So if the lawyer himself didn't have to, based on God's command, love these people, these sinners, these foreigners, then, oh my goodness, who are you to think you're, you're probably doing something harmful by loving them? They're going to think God cares about them if you love them. My goodness sakes, you can't do that. Samaritans? So instead of giving some such exclusionary answer to limit the definition of neighbor, Jesus offers this lawyer a parable. A parable intended to make a man really think intersect his life. And in doing this parable thing, Jesus flips the question of who is my neighbor that the lawyer asks totally on his head. Let me read the parable. So in reply to this who is my neighbor question, Jesus said, a man was going down, and it was literally down, from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan... (laughs) As he traveled came to where the man was. And when he saw him, took pity on him. I'm going to stop for just a second. You can insert numerous people in our culture there. I'll just want probably the most straightforward insertion, to be honest with you. Addicts. You think about it. That's Samaritan. He took pity on him. When he went, he went to him, and he bandaged, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go do likewise. So Jerusalem to Jericho, the reign Judea, southern kingdom. From, the, from Jerusalem, where the temple is, to Jericho, which has this wonderful history. It's the city the walls fell in on. Armies are marching around, right? This travel, this trip, is notoriously dangerous. It's 23 miles. And in that 23, that 23 miles, there's almost 2,300 feet 
of elevation change. So that's why I said you like literally are going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's quite a journey. There's not like major roads. Not on that journey, there are trails and paths, and people made that journey quite a bit. So it was well beaten, but it was like, you know, total sprain your ankle kind of trip. I mean, all you got on is like low top sandals, you know. Just saying, like, not gonna be an easy trip. There were plenty of places for bandits to hide out, for people that wanted to rob other people to hide out, to jump out, to take advantage of you, to, to rob you. People oftentimes made this trip in groups. And another thing to notice here is that most likely, although we don't know, it was Judean on Judean banditry. It was a, a, a Jewish person of the southern kingdom making their way from Jerusalem to Jericho who's probably being robbed by another Jewish person. We certainly are supposed to assume that a man who's the certain man making the trip that gets robbed is a Jew. And then what happens? So he's jumped, he's beat, he's left half dead on the side of the road. For what it's worth, this was great. This stuff happened. Probably happened like daily. Priest happens upon him. And a voice said, It's not my neighbor. <laughs> I'm not going to get close enough to find out if he is my neighbor. Uninteresting. Why? Why in the world would this priest of all people do that? Why would, why would not he give a snot about somebody that he comes across laying on the side of the road almost dead? Unclean would be Absolutely. Among other things. It's dangerous for one. Like, my goodness, if you stop and you knelt down and you started helping the guy, the bandits are probably just waiting for him. As a matter of fact, it might be a plot. Maybe the guy's really not half dead. He's just laying there. I know he's half dead. And his buddies are going to come out and jump me just as soon as I go to help and maybe, right? Because we don't usually justify our behaviors with just one thing. Come up with numerous things. And maybe he's unclean. I mean, priests aren't supposed to come into contact with dead bodies. They'll become unclean. And likely he was just at, in Jerusalem where the temple was. Maybe he was leading some kind of a wonderful ceremony or some kind of a wonderful service. And my goodness, he had that glow that you have after a wonderful worship service, right? And you just don't want to mess it up. Right? I'll have to take my time to lose my glow. Help some half dead guy. I mean, he's probably not going to live If it was about the command for the priest to not come in contact with a dead body, if that was what was going on in his mind, well, then clearly for that priest, that law took precedent over the law commanding him to love his man. Because we do that sometimes, right? Let me just look through the Bible until I can find another verse and then I don't have to do anything. Right? <laughs> and then a Levite, he happens upon him too. So it's interesting, these two guys are from the same tribe. He happens upon him because every priest is a Levite, right? Not all Levites are priests, but all, Le all priests are Levites. He sees the guy too. Not my neighbor, once again. 
Why? Why again? Well, many of the same reasons, the same thing. Like, it's too dangerous. Why do I want to take my, my life and risk it? Like, I got a family I'm going to take care of. Like, how could I possibly risk taking care of this half-dead guy when I've got a family that I need to go take care of? I can't, I can't risk the sake of not being there to take care of my family because, you know, it's not about God taking care of my family, it's about me taking care of my family. So I can't possibly stop to risk my life for him. That would be irresponsible. I hear that argument all the time. It's crazy, but I understand it. It's quite possible, too, that, so, by this point in Israel's history, Levites collected tithes. So, like, not everybody could bring their tithe to Jerusalem, to the temple. And so, they took the Levites, who weren't priests, and they sent them into the countryside to collect tithes. To collect a tenth of whatever everybody wanted to give. There was a lot of corruption that happened in that context as well. But so maybe the guy's like, oh my goodness, I can't stop and like help this guy because I couldn't go collect all the money that the people are supposed to give me to bring back to the temple. Right? Like, how could I how could I take the time out to risk caring about this guy, right? It's kind of like, how could I stop and help somebody that's stranded alongside the road because I need to get to church so that I can put my offering into the offering box. Like, I can't possibly, I'm going to worship God right now. You really think that I need to be troubled? I stop even helping you with your flat tire? Whatever. More important things going on here than your flat tire. You got checked for eighty-seven dollars right here. <laughs> Praise God for that check. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, like, we we gotta stop thinking about what it is we're doing, right? You can you can you can be late in bringing your time check if it was because you were. Loving somebody on your way here. You know? And then, after the priests and Levites are like, not my neighbor, not my problem, they had somehow limited the definition of neighbor. A Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, happens upon him. I mean, first of all, they've got to stop and ask, what the hell is a Samaritan doing between Jerusalem and Jericho? Right? He's in Judea. What in the world is he doing there? No idea. Walking up and down between Jerusalem and Jericho looking for people that are hurt? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. But what, what we are told is that he sees him and he takes pity on him. He has empathy for him. Have you heard of the word alms yet? Almsgiving is actually from Elios, the Greek word that means pity or mercy. And, and, and so, like, he didn't. <laughs> he wasn't going to collect tithes to bring them back as almsgiving or mercy giving or anything else. He was stopping to actually show the man mercy, tangible, right on the spot. He bandaged him. He soothed his wounds with oil and wine. I can't imagine being the guy in the ditch at this point. Maybe you're trying to cry out. Maybe you, you can't. But maybe you can make a little noise. And I don't know. Maybe you can cry out real loud. But it's, everybody's just going by. And nobody's doing anything. And then finally, this Samaritan guy actually stopped to help him. And actually has pity on him. Actually soothes his, his wounds. Takes care of his wounds. 
takes this man and places him on his own donkey, and now he has to walk alongside of his donkey, most likely. He brings him into a to an inn, to a place to show him hospitality, to take care of him. And he didn't just stop there. He paid for his stay, and he made the person that he dropped him off with a promise that he would come back and pay any additional fees. He didn't just take pity on him, he had mercy on him, he had compassion on him, he took responsibility for him. It wasn't just a one-moment shot. He risked his life for him, and he cared for him. He didn't just dump him off to be somebody else's problem. We don't hear any about, for this guy, theologizing, any excuse-making, not, this guy isn't my neighbor, this Samaritan, who... <laughs> Speaking to a Jewish audience, Jesus was here, then this man, he would have been quite probably disturbed that a good guy was a Samaritan. It is probably right when you put a good Samaritan in front of that. <clears throat> he, didn't, he didn't figure that the guy in the ditch must have been a, a horrible sinner that deserved such a thing. Or a foreign a foreign man who was his enemy who had it coming sooner or later. He didn't do any of that. He didn't get hung up on a list of laws and find one that he could use to justify himself for not caring for the man. He just cared for the man. And here comes in this whole story the point where Jesus flips the entire notion of neighbor on his head. Remember, remember the lawyer? That set, the question that he asked Jesus and set off this parable was, who is my neighbor? Right? That's the question. Who is, who is my neighbor? But at this point, Jesus asks the lawyer a question. He says, who is being a neighbor? He doesn't say, so who was the neighbor? He says, who is being a neighbor? Jesus reorients things in a way that gets at the heart of the command to love neighbor to begin with. That does not allow for us exclusion of anyone in the command. He points out that the command... It's all about the one who is commanded by the law concerning who they are supposed to be. That's the whole reason that it's there. You are a neighbor. You are a neighbor. That's what you're supposed to be, is a neighbor. It's the as-yourself part that's really key here. It's the whole point of the command. Jesus, no, it wasn't the command that was known very well so that people could figure out who neighbor was. That wasn't the thrust of the sentence, the thrust of the command. The whole thrust of the command is loving. You weren't supposed to dissect it to the point where you could find a way to eliminate certain people. That's not the point of the command. It was all about loving people. It was never intended to become a means to justify exclusion of some people from your love. It was not meant to be the means of creating a loophole that could justify your exemption from a command. Right? I think it's clever that Jesus redirects the lawyer's orientation in this way to the command. It's not about exclusion, this command. It's about embrace. To make it into anything else 
love your neighbor as yourself. Even to, to make it anything else is to, to turn even the second greatest command, according to Jesus, the one that's like the first, into something that's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The lawyer at this point is left with no other option but to say in response to Jesus' question of who is being a neighbor, I'm the one who had mercy on us. Some people, it's kind of a zinger, right? <laughs> Goodness sakes, you got me, Jesus. I don't know what to say now. It's, and all the more is it a zinger considering, is it okay to call it a zinger? I don't know. <laughs> considering the one who was being a, a neighbor, the one who was being the neighbor was a Samaritan. Like, oh my goodness. You mean, like, those people can be nice to people? <laughs> I don't think there's anything good in a Samaritan. He has to admit this. Like, what does that mean for the Samaritan then? Because, like Jesus said to the response of, what must they do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, strength, and maybe as yourself. Go and do likewise and you will live. Well, what does that say about the Samaritan who's doing it? <laughs> you mean Samaritan's going to be sinners? Dear Lord. Yeah, you sure can. Do we do we do this today? This twisting things away from their intention to create loopholes so that we don't have to abide by them? Do we do that? Do we not here? <laughs> At least we wrestle with them when we find ourselves doing it. Like, or just simply, do we find people to exclude from our command to love? Do we like narrow down neighbor? Or do we narrow down brother, Adelphoi, or Delphos, and, and Greek brothers and sisters? I know a lot of people, a lot of biblical teachers will try to narrow down who you require to love based on how that terminology is to be understood. No, it's just talking about people that are church people. You only have to love church people. Brothers and sisters is a term just referring to people in the church. You know, any time it says brother or sister, that's just church people. You don't have to love people outside the church. Really? I'm not joking. That's what I one of my very first experiences was actually trying to debate online with somebody. It was on that topic. It was like unpleasant. Oh boy. I mean, oh yeah, I'm not even going to that. So, do we do that? I mean, as a, as a whole, the church, I think we do. Like, that's a really the stupidest question I've ever asked. Probably. Do we do this? Yeah, we do. We do. We do. We do. Yeah, sadly. We do without question, and it's unacceptable. As disciples of Christ, who loves a despised woman at a well, who engages people that are sinners and tax collectors that certainly would not have qualified as neighbor by this lawyer's definition. For following a Savior like that who calls us to be like him, we can't not do that and think we're actually following. I'm not saying it's easy. We must not exclude people because of their nationality, because of their religion, because of their gender, because of their skin color, because of their social status. Not because we disagree with them, not because of their sin, not for any reason can we exclude people from our love. We can't do it. We can't. We can ask them really hard questions about what does it look like for me to love this person in their situation. We can ask that hard question, but we can't say, no, I don't care about them. I'm not even going to try and love them. I'm not even concerned about them whatsoever. They can just do it with them. Right? <laughs> We can't do that. We can't. 
There's no single justifiable reason that anyone can be excluded from our love. Never think for a single second that I'm trying to say, and I know you guys know this, but I think this is in any way easy. It is absolutely not easy. It may be closer, honestly, to impossible. Seriously. Like loving people, hard people, desperate people, difficult people, people like you and me, <laughs> it's closer to impossible than it is to easy. If it, if it were easy, it would... We, we wouldn't try and even create loopholes to, to, to relieve us the responsibility. So where do we go from here? First of all, relax. Because your salvation is not based on loving people perfectly or getting it right all the time. It might be a pretty direct tie with your recognition that you are called to love everyone. However, because our salvation is not dependent on doing it perfectly all the time or getting it right all the time, because it's really hard, um, because it because it isn't because our salvation isn't directly tied to getting it just right, that in itself cannot be a loophole to not loving people. I mean, this is another thing church people do, right? Oh, I'm righteous according to not my deeds but by the, by faith. And thus I will not show you my faith by my deeds at all. I don't have to love people. Jesus loves me just fine. Right? <laughs> my salvation is mine. I can do whatever I want to. Like, oh, you are of the blood of Christ. You're not your own. Christ is forming in you and he calls you to be like him. We need to understand the love. We're going to even start doing this better in our lives. Love, take, love takes mercy. And that mercy requires some level of empathy. To love your neighbor as yourself, you must imagine yourself in their situation, right? Because it's not just love your neighbor, it's love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a helpful way to figure out what to do in loving your neighbor, is to imagine that they are you or you are them. Just imagine you're in their situation. It's really that simple. It's not complicated. It's really complicated to actually figure it out, but it's not complicated to stop and think about it. Just stop and try for a minute. Okay, let's see. Say this guy's all in the ditch over there. He looks like he's dead. He barely looks alive. I, if I was him, and he was walking by me, what would I want? It's not that complicated. We just have to stop and think about it for a second. Imagine yourself in their situation. It will create empathy because at some point you're like, yeah, that would kind of suck. Pretty dusty road. I just got robbed of all my resources. I'm half dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I can I can connect with how that wouldn't be very pleasant. Keep in mind, however, that in order to imagine yourself in another person's situation, we actually have to get to know the other person. Like it's one thing to encounter a person in a ditch along the road, half dead, and know what we want somebody to do to us. But how about encountering a homeless person in a world where housing seems available? Like, to understand why somebody is, even in that case, say, homeless, 
Relationships are kind of required, right? Relationships with people who need help make us question, among other things, our working narratives then, of homeless people, of people that are dealing with homelessness. Like, it's easy to have some working narrative about why people are homeless, but it's hard to maintain those ideas if you actually get to know people. Working narrative, if you've never heard that before, it's like a general storyline about people and situations and the world that allows a person to function in some sane sense, but that can also be used to do things like justify excluding people from our love. Narratives such as, we need to take care of those closest to us first, or nationalism, <laughs> if you will. Or a person puts the needs of people in their nation before anybody else's. Right? Jesus obliterates those ideas quickly with this parable. Clearly it wasn't the Samaritans first for the one who had mercy. It wasn't, sorry buddy, I'm walking up and down this road looking for Samaritans. Once I complete my journey and then I'm sure there are no Samaritans, then I'll come back for you. Right? Humans never really do it that way anyway. I mean, we, we really say it's totally sick and twisted when people actually do that. But it, it's really hard in a, in a person that has any care for people at all for them to do that. It's, it's been my experience that if you don't care about people, you don't care about people. Like, if you can really walk by somebody that is of a different skin color and not care about them, you just don't really care about people. Or you're really twisted. And if you will, um, you probably all won't throw stones at me right now anyway for saying this, but I mean, if I'm going to be really real about this, the folks who say America first, they, they, among other things, really do need to put their money where their mouth is, though, because there are plenty of veterans in need out there and do not have enough help. So even for people that want to try and make that argument, yeah, put your money where your mouth is, because sooner or later, actually, your heart's going to be changed toward a lot of other things, too, so go with it. Go care for some Americans first. You better do it, though. It's obvious, in my opinion, at least, with all this is, let's still apply the just-as-yourself principle to Jesus, that Jesus is reinforcing. If you were an American in a foreign country and needed help, would you want the native people to just ignore your need because you were an American? Or would you want them to help you because you were a human? It's not difficult. It's not difficult. It's hard to do. And so we come up with working narratives like that because we want to feel better about ourselves. But it's not hard. It's not hard to see what we're supposed to do. Or another working narrative, something like this, which one drives me nuts. Dysfunctional people will change when things get hard enough for them. AKA, don't help them then. Right? You guys have probably heard that before. I know some of you have. I've had conversations. You've had people tell you stuff like that. Oh, you just gotta let them hit their bottom. You, you, you know, when it, gets, when it gets bad enough, they'll want to do something better. Oh, if you keep, uh, how, how do we go? How do we go? If you just, if you just keep taking care of them, they're never gonna take responsibility for themselves. Something like that, right? Yeah, common. Yeah, if you just keep coddling them, they're never gonna take responsibility for themselves. Never teach men how to fish. You'll never be able to catch a fish on. Right, something along those lines, right? 
Let me ask you this question, though. When you have discomfort caused by dysfunction, does it create in you a desire to change? Hold on. Because I will say yes sometimes. Sometimes, when things get bad enough, we're like, oh my goodness, I need to do something different. But if you're going to be super, super honest with yourself right now, I think you will recognize and realize that there are times when we just make the same stupid mistake over and over again, as discomforting as it is, and don't do anything different the next time. My goodness, how come I don't have enough money to pay my bills at the end of the month? I guess I should stop renting all those Starbucks drinks at $5.80, $5.80 a piece. And then Monday rolls around, and new month, and you, uh, you go to Starbucks, and the next thing you know, you're out of money again at the end of the month. Like, if we make dumb decisions all the time, and this pain doesn't necessarily cause us to change. It does sometimes, but boy, if it only was the work that easily. Now let me ask you this question, to make it even a little more complicated. What if the dysfunction causing pain was motivated by covering up pain to begin with? Would you experience, would your experiencing of more pain compel you to change, or maybe would it cause you to continue to live in dysfunction? So let's say you have so much pain in your life that you actually do dysfunctional things to try and cover up all the pain that you have. And then somebody just shows up and says, you know what, you just need to let them have some more pain, and finally one of these days they'll wake up. Does it, what about that? Does this working narrative of dysfunctional people will change when things get hard enough for them. No, it just drives people deeper into dysfunction and desperation. I mean, I think the place that we can say we see this more clearly is people that are dealing with substance abuse, anesthetizing pain. More pain of being called a loser or no good isn't going to cause you to all of a sudden be like, okay, my pain is so severe, I'm such a loser. I get it now. I guess I'll stop. That was the reason the person was using all the meds to begin with, right? What people that what people need is not more pain; they need hope. Right. But hope sometimes is hard to find. And the place it should be found, if it's going to be found anywhere, is in church. I mean, if we're going to again apply, apply this, like, what would I do kind of principle? Stop for a second, listen to somebody, get to know their story, and consider what it's like to find a job for a two-time felon who messed up badly when he was 18 and 19 years old, now he's 25 years old, and he's just trying to find a job. And everywhere he turns, somebody says, I'm sorry, you're a two-time felon. Are you kidding me? I can't give you a job. Or find housing for a homeless veteran who is in active meth addiction as a result of the trauma and the pain he's experienced when he was at, at, at war. I'm almost done. Another working narrative we have is all I need to do to help people discover a flourishing life is to meet their basic needs. Shelter, clothing, food. I give them that, and they're going to be fine. Now, don't get me wrong, because basic needs are absolutely necessary and good. But meeting a person's basic needs is only part of fostering a flourishing life. It's only part of it. Clearly, it is. 
hard, if not impossible, to discover a flourishing life. I don't mean to like when I say that flourishing, we're just like think of a plant that's like flourishing, and it's like so loaded down with blossoms that it can barely hold itself up. I don't know, is that, maybe that's too much flourishing. I don't know. <laughs> but like, if you were to see a person like that, their life is flourishing, maybe they don't have all kinds of stuff, but they have content, they have peace, they have hope, they have joy. Basic needs of food and housing and clothing are necessary for a flourishing life, but they in and of themselves aren't going to create a flourishing life. You can't just say, here's a piece of bread, and here's a place to live. Good luck! And then when it doesn't work out, you're like, yep, that guy's a loser. You don't have to love him anymore. I mean, I gave him a piece of bread, a place to live. He didn't even work it out. He's just, right? I mean, I get this. Conservatively-minded people see that kind of thing, see this kind of like giving towards people's basic needs. And they rightly notice that people get stuck in habitual cycles of reliance. I get that. Now, is that a reason to say, nope, I'm not going to meet your basic needs anymore? Absolutely not. It can't, because otherwise people aren't going to live. We've already talked about pain not being a very good way to motivate people toward a flourishing life. Just take away all your food. Let's just start. Now it'll work, right? And then, of course, literally-minded people keep on doing this symbol of offering of stuff and find themselves frustrated and burned out trying to hope for a flourishing life of somebody with only their basic needs. For a flourishing life, we need our basic needs to be met, but we must also experience love, fellowship, relationships, connection with people. We need to walk with folks to see their lives flourish, and we need folks to walk with us to see our lives flourish. People need one another. The reality is that that folks who have real broken lives have oftentimes no idea what actually fosters a flourishing life. And Jesus walks into our lives and teaches us and shows us what a flourishing life looks like. A life filled with God's presence, with grace, with mercy, with faithfulness. People, though, oftentimes today, maybe you can think about whether or not this applies to you now or at some point in your life, have no idea how to manage their lives. You give them stuff and people don't know how to manage them. They have no idea how to overcome obstacles in their lives. They have no hope to think that they could overcome obstacles in their lives. They have no idea, people have no idea sometimes how to work. Now it seems crazy to some of you, it seems really crazy to my dad, but people sometimes have no idea how to work. Nobody's taught them, nobody's shown them just how to work. Let alone do people know how to raise kids. I mean, boy, I've read every book on raising kids, and I still don't know how to raise kids, and I'm trying to do it. People have no idea, they're already married and they have no idea how to have a spouse. People have no idea how to have a how, how to balance a checkbook, as modern as that is. Well, they don't have checkbooks anymore. People don't have any idea how to take responsibility for their own life. People don't know how to forgive. People don't know how to serve. People don't know how to repent. People don't know how to walk humbly with their God. Like, 
If people don't know how to do those things, having their basic needs met is good and necessary because like it's nice to try and instill those people in like living people. <laughs> right? But we we have to meet people at those places and teach them and encourage them. We need a community like, like this one to foster lives that are flourishing. What does God's love look like for us? What does God's love look like for, for you? Because this is the love that we're supposed to imitate. God does this for enemies, not just friends. While we were still his enemies, he sent his one and only son to die for us. Right? We're supposed to be like that. We have a Savior that is familiar with suffering, with temptation, and he can empathize with us. We should learn to empathize with others. We have a Savior who is the King of the Kingdom of God, but He does not ignore us foreigners. <laughs> Instead, He invites us to become citizens of His Kingdom. We have to stop excluding, we have to stop spinning half-truths that at best allow you to exclude people, and to find a reason to include people and embrace people. This is the way of Christ. The way of Christ. And he is the way. And the truth and the life. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, you know, <laughs> forgive us when we spin things around because things are so hard we want to justify ourselves. Let us just live in forgiveness and move forward to trying to do a better job of loving those who are in our presence. Help us to become good neighbors. Help us to recognize that that's the burden and responsibility that we bear to be a neighbor, to love people. So inspire us, Holy Spirit, with a desire to love one another deeply from the heart, not, not superficially. Not just throw platitudes at people, but to really get to know them, to really understand the struggle that others go through. Let us, Lord Jesus, open our hearts to the world around us that so needs you. It's overwhelming, Lord God, the responsibility that you have given us to be your hands and feet on earth. But I know that you do not leave us without being equipped. You don't, you don't leave us, period. You don't call us to this without equipping us. So Holy Spirit, continue to equip this community. Continue to transform people's hearts and minds to be like you. And not just have faith in, in you, but have a faith like yours. Oh, there's such good life there, Jesus. Let us not be overwhelmed and are doing it good, but sustain us and teach us good balance.